Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Nora Young. This is Spark. Since the show began in 2007, we've explored the impact of digital tech and how intense connectivity has changed the way we live. In many respects, advancement in digital technologies have made things more convenient. And as we saw in the first year of the pandemic, our digital tech became a lifeline for many individuals and businesses. But as much as it helps us be productive or entertains and connects us, the same technologies have also encouraged us to waste time, joylessly strolling and ignoring the people we care about, or the constant connection leaves us feeling overextended and overloaded. So today, we're doing a start of the new year checkup. You'll hear guests and ideas we've aired on Spark in previous years. We hope they'll help us see how we might reset our technology use today. Our life is frittered away by detail. Simplicity, simplicity, simplicity. I say, let your affairs be as two or three, and not a hundred or a thousand. Instead of a million, count half a dozen, and keep your accounts on your thumbnail. Go with me on this now. Simplify. It's the year 1845. Simplify. And Henry David Thoreau has had enough of the modern world. The laboring man has not leisure for a true integrity day by day. He has no time to be anything but a machine. Even without smartphones, streaming, and social media, at the ripe old age of 28, Thoreau was ready to unplug, so to speak. He abandoned all his material possessions and his job at the family pencil factory in the bustling town of Concord, Massachusetts. And for two years, two months, and two days, he lived alone in a tiny cabin he built on the edge of Walden Pond. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life, to drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms. And if it proved to be mean, why then to get the whole and genuine meanness of it and publish its meanness to the world. Or if it were sublime, to know it by experience and be able to give a true account of it in my next excursion. That true account came a few years later when he published Walden or Life in the Woods, a seminal work and one of the greatest arguments ever made in favor of simple living. We must learn to reawaken and keep ourselves awake, not by mechanical aids, but by an infinite expectation of the dawn, which does not forsake us even in our soundest sleep. 
Sure, but let's be honest. The reality is that he wasn't really as self-reliant and ascetic as he makes out in Walden, and Thoreau happened to be in the very privileged position of being able to just opt out of the hustle and bustle of 1845 and wax poetic about nature. And yet he also managed to nail our present-day conundrum. So as a touchstone, Walden remains a powerful work and an opportunity to ask ourselves some deep questions. I think we fail at solitude every time we wake up, don't we? This is Michael Harris. I spoke to him in 2019. He's the author of The End of Absence, Reclaiming What We've Lost in a World of Constant Connection, and Solitude, A Singular Life in a Crowded World. The theme of the latter book was inspired by Thoreau, particularly the idea that loneliness is failed solitude. We reach for our phone instead of for the person next to us, or get in the shower and even the five minutes of solitude in the shower feels like maybe too much. This is the state of being that we're in. I, I think every generation has to has to wrestle with designing their own solitude into their lives based on the, the technologies or, or the media environment that they find themselves in. Mm-hmm. And is that the primary conundrum for us is balancing solitude with our technologies? I think, you know, we're the first internet naive generation, right? We're really the people who are having to figure this out for the first time. And as such, we have to learn to curate our media diet in the same way that we've already kind of figured out how to curate a food diet. Mm. So it, it is, a, to a certain degree, an original question for us, just because of the, the quantity of interruptions, the quantity of distractions in our lives. And yet, at the same time, it really is a question that rolls through the years. Every generation, I think, has had to make their own decisions about how to balance their lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the funny thing is you go back to Thoreau and it's the 19th century and he's talking about the number of things that you have to do and getting away from the complexity of life, which seems almost comical to us uh, from our perspective. Well, but absolutely. I mean, I think this is the thing is you you only can learn how to live in the future by looking to the past for for examples. Right. And I mean, when it, Thoreau goes to that cabin in the woods uh, in 1845 and for him, the world really was getting much busier in the same way that our world is getting much busier. If you think about what life was like when he was a child versus 28 years old when he, when he goes into the woods, you know, the railway had just kind of come to town. Mm. The telephone was going to be invented 10 years after he wrote that book. The telegraph already existed. So for him, his world was getting so much faster, so much busier. And the lesson that we get from Thoreau is that he makes a choice. He sees his world changing, and for him, it's getting too busy too fast, and he decides to design his own life. Mm-hmm. So just to return to this idea that loneliness has failed solitude, mm-hmm. how can solitude actually help us combat loneliness? Well, I, you know, with Thoreau, again, he, he said something in a speech once about how the more unhappy we are with ourselves the more we will run to the mailbox. Hmm. And I think about that a lot. When I dig into my pocket for my phone, it's, it says something about what's going on inside of me, how content I am with my own life. And I think the reverse must be true too, that if we, if we design a rich interior life, 
for ourselves, if we work, if we do that work at building that rich interior life, it's going to end up giving us uh, a, a healthier uh, relationship with our devices. But can solitude be bad for us, though? I think that loneliness can be painful, mm-hmm. and I do think you know this. This isn't about becoming a hermit. At one point, when I was writing my last book, I went to a cabin in the woods, and spent some time completely isolated. And when I went into the woods, I thought, okay, this is great. I'm going to have, have this uh, splendid creative uh, uh-huh. period. And a few days into it, it occurred to me that, you know, like the Unabomber went into the woods too, mm. right? That there's a healthy and an unhealthy way of doing this. I, again, back to designing your life, I think it comes down to figuring out what do you want out of your life And then what is the amount of social connection or disconnection that's going to help you get there? Mm -hmm. I want to return a little bit to this idea of contemporary technology and our our lack of solitude. I mean, it seems to me that, you know, we're drawn to social media because we're social creatures, but also because connection is literally the entire business model of social media. Mm. So why does that kind of social interaction ultimately seem so unsatisfying for us? I mean, I think it's... Because the the point of social media is not actual actually social connection, right? The point is always to put eyeballs onto advertising. It's the monetization of our attention. Mm-hmm. And it is done under the veil of a social experience, but that is not actually the point. And I, I think we're all being triggered by these social cues, and yet we're all also smart enough to realize this isn't really what it feels like to yeah. to be tied to someone else, to feel warm in somebody else's gaze, right? So we always feel a little let down. Mm-hmm. In Solitude, you argue that solitude is important for creativity, for self-understanding, and for connecting with others. Those first two are perhaps not that surprising, but how does solitude improve our connection with others? Mm. I really do think that spending time alone helps you to be, in particular, kinder to others. It, it trains you in empathy, I think. If you're better company for yourself, it stands to reason that you would become better company for somebody else, mm. right? I think that's what it comes down to is we have to, I mean, this is a bit cheesy, but RuPaul says it all the time. Mm-hmm. If you can't love yourself, how, how the hell are you going to love someone else, else yeah. right? Uh, and I think that's what this comes down to. But this is something that you wrestle with in the in the book. You you know you ask the question in the early going of like why why is it so hard for me to spend time in my own company? What mm-hmm. what did you come to realize in the end? I mean I th- I think it's a similar reason to why it's so hard for me to not eat a piece of chocolate cake if it's offered to me. Right? We have really libidinal instincts for social grooming that are constantly being triggered by new forms of technology. On some level, it's as banal as like the idea of I got to go to the gym, even though I don't feel like going to the gym today. It's that decision, I need to spend some time on my own. And, you know, I think, I think Doug Copeland actually said this, that the, the time when you feel lonely is exactly the time you need to, to spend time on your own. Hmm. It's you have to actually lean into that loneliness, I think, because it's t- it's telling you that you're not feeling okay with yourself. So you you deserve to look into that. You deserve to try and 
heal that part of yourself that isn't happy with itself. Mm-hmm. But is it possible that we're romanticizing solitude a little here? You know, is this Thoreauvian state of independence and self-reliance. I mean, after all, humans are social creatures. We need, just even physically, we need to be touched. And we live in cities where some people routinely go for days or weeks without any genuine contact. Mm. Well, and that's the difference between loneliness and solitude, right? Solitude is that healthy, productive experience of being alone. And our need for solitude, it's ironic, but it's running alongside this epidemic of loneliness. You're right. This negative, painful experience of being alone. And when you ask, are we romanticizing solitude? I think it's really important to remember that if you think of Thoreau, he was so privileged, right? He Mm -hmm. was this young, Harvard-educated guy with no children. And for some reason, he was able to spend two years at a cabin in the woods without having a job. Right. right. Uh, this, this was not a typical experience, right? Certainly wouldn't have been a typical experience for women at the time uh, who had, you know, seven children that they had to take care of. Solitude was not an option. So I do think that people like Thoreau and people like myself who, you know, go and work on a book in a cabin in the woods, that's such a privileged thing to do. And it, it can absolutely lead to a romanticization of it. Mm-hmm. But I would say that for most people, there are still these simpler acts of, you know, designing little corners of your life where we can have solitude, where it's not really that big romantic gesture of becoming a hermit in the woods. It's more, have you brought your phone into your bedroom? Mm -hmm. Did you, you know, did you text on the bus or were you letting yourself kind of daydream and look out the window, you know, or have you been choosing how you'll use your phone Or are you allowing the apps on your phone to choose how they use you? Mm -hmm. Michael, thanks so much for your insights on this. Thank you. Michael Harris is the author of Solitude and the End of Absence. That interview was from 2019. Young and this week on Spark, we're revisiting themes of disconnection, connection, and the consequences of tech overuse. My name is Anna Lemke. I'm a psychiatrist. I'm professor of psychiatry and addiction medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine. I'm not on social media because I know I wouldn't be able to handle it. My addiction to romance novels really kicked off once I got a Kindle. And that happened to me while I was treating patients with addiction and thought actually that I was immune to the problem of addiction since traditional drugs don't have much impact on me. Turns out I just hadn't yet met my drug of choice. Anna has spent years treating people for addiction and mental disorders. Her book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, is about how our pursuit of pleasure actually makes us more miserable. And how we should embrace a new form of asceticism in order to navigate this dopamine-overloaded world. We've heard a lot about dopamine in relation to things we enjoy, like chocolate or getting Instagram notifications. But what is it and how does it actually work? So dopamine is a chemical that we make in our brain. It's essential for survival. It's involved in pleasure, reward, and motivation, but also movement. Dopamine is 
released in our reward pathway in our brain in a way that the more we release it and the faster that we release it, the more potentially reinforcing is that substance or behavior. One of the most exciting findings in neuroscience in the past 75 years is that pleasure and pain are co-located in the brain. So the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain, and they work like opposite sides of a balance. But there are certain rules governing this balance, and the first and most important rule is that the balance wants to remain level. It doesn't want to be tilted for very long, either to the side of pleasure or pain, and our brains will work very hard to restore a level balance after any deviation from homeostasis. And the way that we do that is first by tilting an equal and opposite amount to whatever the initial stimulus was. So I I eat a piece of chocolate, that releases a little bit of dopamine in my brain's reward pathway, my balance tilts to the side of pleasure, but no sooner has that happened than my brain adapts by down-regulating dopamine transmission, not just to baseline, but below baseline. I imagine that as these neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again, but they like it on the balance, so they stay on until it's tilted an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That's the come down, the hangover, the blue Monday, that moment of wanting one more piece of chocolate or watching one more TikTok video. So with every pleasure, we pay a price, and that is how we restore a level balance. The reason that's important is because with repeated exposure to the same or similar stimulus, that initial deviation to pleasure on the balance gets weaker and shorter, but that after effect gets stronger and longer. In other words, those gremlins start to multiply, and pretty soon we end up with enough gremlins to fill this whole room, and now we're in addicted brain. Now we need to use not to get high, but just to feel normal, When we're not using, we're in a chronic dopamine deficit state, walking around with the balance, with a bunch of gremlins on that pain side, experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and craving. Anna says we've all become susceptible to compulsive digital overconsumption thanks to our smartphones. But what does digital technology or smartphone compulsion look like? And how does it differ from addiction, if it does? There's actually, from a phenomenological point of view, not that much difference between addiction to a screen or a device or the digital media that comes with it and addiction to a drug. People usually start out using for one of two reasons, either for fun or to solve a problem, That problem can range anywhere from boredom, isolation, to depression, insomnia, inattention, and everything in between. If the drug works for them, and I'm using that term drug very broadly to include our digital devices and the the content that we get from them, then people will repeat that behavior because it's reinforcing, it feels good, it solves a problem. And as I said, with repeated exposure to the same or similar reinforcing stimulus, our brain adapts such that we start to down-regulate dopamine transmission in response to that stimulus, not just to baseline, but below baseline, that chronic dopamine deficit state. And now we're caught on that hedonic treadmill, that dopamine vortex, where we now feel as if we're using uh, autonomously and through our own choice, but actually the drug itself is commanding us to use because that physiologic drive to restore homeostasis is so incredibly overwhelming for all living organisms. And in a world in which we have almost infinite access to highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors, uh, it's very easy then to reach for that drug again 
in an attempt to restore dopamine homeostasis. But really what we're doing is chasing our tails. And so is there something like um, a continuum between, you know, overuse, use disorder, addiction, and, and are those categories sort of generally recognized within the psychiatric community when it comes to behaviors like use of our digital technologies? Well, first of all, addiction broadly is recognized as a spectrum disorder. Um, you know, you can be a little bit moderately and a lot addicted. And we don't have any blood tests or brain scans to diagnose addiction. We base this on phenomenology or patterns of behavior. We have a list of 11 criteria. The more criteria you meet, the, the more addicted you are on that spectrum of mild, moderate to severe. The question of whether or not digital addiction or device addiction or tech addiction is recognized, I will say to you, it's increasingly recognized. And I think general consensus is uh, on the part of most healthcare providers today is that yes, people can get addicted to technology and to digital media and the devices that deliver them. But it's not yet included in our Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is our compendium uh, for diagnosing and getting reimbursed for treating, I might add, mm -hmm. uh, certain mental illnesses. So how would you explain the urge that many of us get to sort of pick up our phones during these short-term idle times? When I think about what makes the world such an addictogenic place today, four things come to mind. Potency of the stimuli, meaning the more they release dopamine and the faster the dopamine is released, the more reinforcing and potentially addictive it is. Access to the stimuli, one of the biggest risk factors for addiction is just simple access. If you can get your drug easily, you're more likely to try it and more likely to get addicted to it. And of course, as we've talked about, digital drugs are everywhere. And we can, you know, we can access them running for the bus, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> no, number three, you've got quantity. So quantity and frequency matters, right? When you think about that pleasure-pain balance, if you leave enough time in between use for those neuroadaptation gremlins to hop off and for homeostasis to be restored, you're never going to get into addicted brain, right? You're going to have time to reset yourself. But we don't do that because the quantity is infinite, right? If we had as much cocaine as we have YouTube videos, that would be a whole lot of cocaine, right? A lot more of us would be struggling with cocaine addiction, but we're struggling with, you know, video and YouTube and, and TikTok and that kind of thing. And then finally, the third category is novelty. So something new. Dopamine loves newness, which is why we can literally get addicted to the news. Because although it's like not happy information, it's new. And the brain and dopamine loves that newness, and we can start chasing that instead. Yeah. Are there ways that contemporary North American life itself kind of pulls us into our phones, you know, in spite of whatever our best intentions might be? Uh, yeah, I would say everything about contemporary North American life. I mean, there's, and, and, you know, it's a collective problem. You know, when I say to parents, oh, well, you know, send, get your kid off their phones and send them out in the back alley to play kick the can. Well, they might do that, but there are no other kids back out there, right? So it's, it's really a collective problem. Even if you and I try to get off of social media, we have now impoverished our in real life experiences because we're investing so much of our creativity in the online world. And the result of that is that our real lived experience actually is more impoverished. It's less interesting. Mm. Um, you know, it's like I, when I work with families, I say, well, yeah, you know, make mealtimes a time that people are not going to be on their devices and, and go on a vacation together 
uh, when nobody has their devices and anticipate when you do that, that it will be unpleasant, painful, and boring because you'll be in withdrawal, number one. But number two, nobody has talked to anybody for a long time. We haven't been cultivating our lives together in real life. And so it's going to take renewed investment in our in-life experience and creativity to find things to do together, whether it's you know a board game or a card game or some kind of collective experience. So what are some of the tips that you recommend to patients with real addictions to their phones or digital technology, the internet? What do you recommend for them? Yeah, so my prescription is threefold. It, abstain, maintain, and seek out pain. It sounds really horrible for a psychologist to be prescribing pain, but let me get there. First, I recommend that they have an abstinence trial from their digital media of choice for four weeks. We call that the dopamine fast. It's not that they're going to not engage in any kind of reinforcing stimulus, rather that they're going to identify what's problematic for them. Maybe they're going to not play video games or not watch pornography or not go on social media or not go on a particular social media app. And they're going to do that for four weeks. Why? Because four weeks is the average amount of time it takes to reset healthy dopamine reward pathways, which allow us to be able to actually look back and see true cause and effect because we don't see it when we're chasing dopamine, but also allows us to reset those reward pathways so that we can get pleasure from other types of rewards and reinforcers. I always warn them, and this is really an important part of it, that they're going to feel worse before they feel better. So when we take off the reinforcer, off the pleasure side, those gremlins are going to slam us to the side of pain. We're going to be restless, uncomfortable, anxious, and our brain is going to be making up all kinds of reasons why we really should go back onto that website, Mm. even though we committed to not doing it. Just recognize that as part of withdrawal Feel some empathy for people with severe addiction to drugs and alcohol because that's exactly what happens. It's kind of like this terrible, terrible itch that you're not allowed to scratch. But if Mm. you can get through those first 10 to 14 days, that itch starts to subside. The intrusive thoughts of using start to go away. And if you can make it to weeks three and four, people just feel so, so much better. Mood is better, less anxious, sleep is better, able to be more present, able to have more time. Yes, more time means also some existential terror in the face of what do I do with my time? People pick up old hobbies. They get more creative again. They have the ability to have sustained attention. And then after that four-week fast, we talk about what was good, what was bad, and what comes next and what the maintenance phase will look like. Now, many, if not most people want to go back to using that digital medium, but they want to use differently. They want to use less and they want to use in a healthier way. So we talk very specifically about what that will look like And often that involves self-binding strategies. So this is literal and metacognitive barriers that we put between ourselves and our drug of choice. Things like actually turning off our phone for periods of time, putting it physically away from us. I can't emphasize enough how important it is to actually physically not have our phones on us for some period. Leave it at home. Leave your house without it. It's good practice to do that, get that physical distance, and then do the other kind of monitoring, deleting the apps that you don't want to use. You know, people with more severe addictions have to do more, take more extreme measures, right? Like uh, people with sports betting addiction have to ban themselves from sports betting websites. I've had people who have even had to actually put their devices into a bank vault 
for a period of time wow. in order. So, I mean, people, it depends on your, the degree of your addiction, but extreme measures are sometimes required, but that's that kind of self-binding. And then the seek out pain part is exactly what it sounds like that, you know, we, we know this pleasure pain balance that if we press on the pleasure side, the gremlins go on the pain side. But if we intentionally press on the pain side with mild to moderate doses of pain, then the gremlins will hop on the pleasure side and we can get our dopamine indirectly by paying for it up front, which is a healthier way to get at it. And that's things like exercise, intermittent fasting, ice cold water immersion, but not just physical pain, also things that are um, emotionally or cognitively challenging, meditation, prayer, uh, reading a hard book, doing a creative activity without interrupting ourselves. So those are the things that we recommend uh, to kind of reset a healthy dopamine reward pathway. And it's hard work. You know, it requires constant maintenance, but um, it really does make people feel a lot better in the world. So beyond what we might sort of clinically call addiction or use disorder, you know, many of us do have that general sense that our time would be better spent doing something else. Could you give us one or two practical tips? Well, the uh, really practical thing I recommend for folks is to do a 24-hour digital fast. That is, don't look at any screen or touch a screen in any shape or form for 24 hours. And then just observe your own mind and notice the kind of craving, intrusive thoughts, restlessness, anxiety. Just even pay attention to the number of times you think about your phone and want to touch it. Because that alone can be a wake-up call for a lot of people to help them understand how these gremlins work and how how addicted we've all become, which I think can then provide the motivation to want to change those behaviors. So whether, you know, you're going to, maybe you can't do a four-week digital fast, but maybe you can do a 24-hour digital fast. Maybe you can do that once a week, or maybe you can commit to intermittent fasting where you don't go on the device before 9 a.m. and you get off before 5 p.m., So there are all kinds of little ways. And, you know, the ways in which to manage this technology is only limited by our own creativity. Doing the dopamine fast with somebody else, whether it's for one day or a week or four weeks, get together with a friend or a family member, do it as a family together, you know, collectively get together for a digital Sabbath. So I just can't emphasize enough people like they want it to be some fancy, magical thing, but really it's really obvious. It's just hard to do. Yeah. Anna, thanks so much for your insights on this. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure. Anna Lemke is a professor of psychiatry at Stanford University and author of Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. That interview was from 2023. Have you ever wondered why you see what you see when you're online? I'm Jamie Bartlett, and in The Gatekeepers from BBC Radio 4, I'm telling the story of how social media accidentally conquered the world. Mark's explained to me he's going for a billion users. I'm going, for what? I'm sorry, what is it you're going to do? They can give us a voice or silence us, whoever we are. At Real Donald Trump, it says, account suspended. Everything to understand how we got here and where it's taking us, listen to The Gatekeepers, available wherever you get your podcasts. In any weather, at any hour of the day or night, I've been anxious to improve the nick of time, to stand on the meeting of two eternities, the past and future, which is precisely the present moment, to toe that line. I'm Nora Young, and this time on Spark, a tech checkup. 
Back in 2019, we were thinking a lot about the pervasive sense of being overwhelmed and overloaded. And we found ourselves inspired by Henry David Thoreau, who, as a 28-year-old curmudgeon in 1845, wrote Walden, his famous book about disconnecting from our busy lives. Let us spend one day as deliberately as nature and not be thrown off the track by every nutshell and mosquito's wing that falls on the rails. In many ways, Thoreau was something of a 19th century American Nostradamus, giving voice to our 21st century desire to unplug, get back to nature, and to ourselves. Let us rise early and fast, or break fast, gently and without perturbation. Let company come and let company go. Let the bells ring and the children cry, determined to make a day of it. Of course, being able to rest and unplug is a luxury. If you're on call in the gig economy or working two jobs, unplugging may be a privilege you can't afford. And if your internet access is mostly the free Wi-Fi at the library or local coffee shop, your problem is not enough digital access rather than too much. But maybe there's a way for us all to carve out a bit of space to nourish our interior lives. I was feeling distracted all the time. This is filmmaker and internet pioneer Tiffany Schlein. More than a decade ago, she and her family decided to do what many have tried before them, a digital detox. The word detox never really sits right with me because detox assumes you can abstain from something and you really can't abstain from technology completely. So we started turning off all screens one day a week for what we call our technology Shabbats. Shabbat, it's over 3,000 years old. It's a very old ancient practice that we're just updating for the 21st century. And we are actually not religious. I'm a cultural Jew. But the more I've read about Shabbat and the more I've brought this into my life and how powerful it can be, um, I would love this to be like yoga and meditation where you're like, oh, I'm going to take a tech Shabbat because that weekly practice will bring so much more back into my life. So what does a typical tech Shabbat look like in Tiffany's home? I start looking forward to it by starting Wednesday. (laughs) I know I'm getting to turn off the screens. And then, you know, Friday afternoon, it just takes like five or ten minutes of prep. We always have people over on Friday nights. They always know not to have their phones out because it's tech Shabbat. And we make a really lovely meal, um, which is probably one of my favorite nights of the week because having a meal with people where no phones are around is a whole different kind of conversation. We make the same thing every Friday, so there's no guesswork there. And anyway, we always have family and friends, neighbors come over. We have a great meal, and we talk about the world. We talk about what happened that week. And then that night, I sleep the best the whole week, and I have problems sleeping, so that's really one of the greatest benefits for me. Mm. And then, so Friday night's very social, but Saturday is much more, I would say, quiet in a beautiful way. My husband and I wake up before the kids and we journal. If we want to talk about something more deeply, we'll say, let's wait till Saturday. There's board games, there's art projects. We cook a lot, we garden. Sometimes we just do nothing, but it's really a day of all the things we wish we had more time to do. And there's not a screen anywhere, and it's just an incredible day. It just makes you appreciate everything happening right in front of you instead of all the things you're missing out on. (laughs) 
I have to say, it sounds wonderful, but how realistic is it to meaningfully change the pattern of your life to abstain from digital screens one whole day and night a week? Tiffany wrote a book all about it called 24-6, The Power of Unplugging One Day a Week. I think we think that everyone just wants to be on all the time, but when you have a built-in regular weekly practice of turning it off, it reminds you that you can exist just fine without the phones and it actually feels incredible. The online world puts you in a perpetual state of wanting, wanting to be somewhere you're not, wanting to buy something, wanting to be stressed out by news, wanting to do, be, click, whatever it is, you're in a constant state of want. And when you turn it off, you suddenly see all that you have right in front of you. I feel like I'm incredibly grateful when I turn it off. And um, I don't think we should look at a 24-7 world as an inevitable way to live. One of the ways that we've talked about this on the show is just sort of the ability to have and nurture an interior life, you know, to nurture that ability where you're mind wandering, where you're just <laughs> paying, you're turning inward in a way, not outward all the time. That's beautifully put. That's exactly the inner world. It's like I've, I, I think we are all so ready for a hit of distraction and to not be with ourselves. And if you spend time, I mean, I'm a filmmaker, so creativity comes so much from that reflective state or the daydreaming state or just giving yourself space to think. So I think paying attention to the value of nurturing your inner world is a beautiful way to put it. And that is why I ended up writing the book 24-6, because the longer I had done this practice with my family for a complete day every week, the better it has become. <laughs> and the, the more I see it's the power of this weekly ritual of a whole day that really gives you back a lot of your your soul and your life. Because, you know, we're being manipulated so much. And I think people have no idea how much, you know, there's thousands of engineers and behavioral scientists and their job is to keep you glued to the screen and they're winning. They're doing it. But at the same time, you're a very, you know, you're a tech early adopter. You're very into the technological world. And yet the picture that you're painting is kind of awful of just what technology is doing to our to our daily lives. So I'm from the tech industry and I founded the Webby Awards and I was honoring the best of the web. But I do think the industry took a wrong turn when the whole business model was gluing your eyes to the screen at any cost. And I don't think we should just accept this as status quo. I think that there needs to be a bigger understanding and questioning of when does technology amplify things and when does it diminish us? When does it diminish experiences? I mean, amongst the things you document about being digital free, you say you laugh more, you sleep better, it improves your relationship, you're more creative. Sounds pretty great. Um, so what would you is, is taking one day off enough to preserve that? For me, it is. I mean, I think that's the beauty of the concept of Shabbat is that here's this free, simple, ancient practice that is very powerful. And it is literally the best thing I've ever done in my life. Um, so one day seems to reset and recalibrate the way I look at it the other six days. But I think those other six days, there's a lot of things that we could change with the way we're using it. I mean, I also talk about in the book, the other six days, you know, no phones on the table at my film studio. We don't have phones on the desks anymore because just seeing a phone off, somebody else's phone off on a table will make you less focused. 
So we've somehow slipped into this society where it's okay to just be talking to someone as you're scrolling, to have phones on the table, to bring them everywhere. And this book is really also asking when it, when should we put it, be putting them away? Yeah. People feel like they can't live without it. They've forgotten how to be without that phone there. And they forgot the power of just being with your own thoughts and being with the people right around you. So uh, people have a lot of fear without being without their phones. But I think you need to remember how important it is to just be with yourself and the people that happen to be in the room with you and to connect that way. You know, connecting broadly is meaningless unless you connect deeply. Tiffany Schlein is the author of 24-6, The Power of Unplugging One Day a Week. That interview was from 2019. I'm Nora Young, and this time on Spark, a tech well-being check. Exploring tech overuse and how to restore some balance to our busy digital lives. But is it even possible to control our compulsive and reflexive use of our digital tech so we can savor the space for rest, relaxation, and restoration? Hi, I'm Gaia Bernstein. I'm a law professor at Seton Hall Law School. I'm the co-director of the Institute for Privacy Protection and the co-director for the Gibbons Institute for Law Science and Technology. And I'm the author of the book Unwired, Gaining Control Over Addictive Technologies. But I still find myself, you know, waking up in the morning, checking the weather, meaning to check the weather, and then I'm still in bed and I've just for half an hour been looking at all my emails and social networks accounts. Even though I am so aware, I find it very, very hard to do better. And maybe that's why I wrote the book, because I feel the problem all the time. Gaia says the problem sort of snuck up on all of us. We basically started using our devices gradually, and we didn't really make a decision, I'm going to spend five hours on my phone. We just, you know, started emailing on the go, started texting, uh, joined Facebook. Every time we pick up our phone, we think we're just picking up the phone to check the weather, Mm -hmm. and then we end up spending, you know, an hour on the phone. And we don't realize it because the designs that uh, tech companies have made to keep us online for longer are invisible to us. In her book Unwired, Gaia argues that the idea that we can individually control how much time we spend on our screens is a sort of illusion. So even if we've read in the news that tech companies want to addict us, we don't remember it when we're there and we just stay on for longer. And we believe still that somehow we're in control. Earlier, Anna Lemke mentioned that today's consumer technology is engineered to be addictive, which means we keep coming back for more and more. Gaia explains the thinking behind the design decisions made by tech companies on platforms like TikTok and Instagram. They've taken really well-known psychological principles and they have uh, made them part of many design features that we see everywhere on the internet. So, for example, they took a very well-known experiment with soup. They gave soup to one group, and that group just ate a normal bowl of soup, and the other group had a bowl of soup with no bottom. So they ate 70% more, not realizing that they were eating more. So basically, their stopping cues were taken away. And that's what's taking place all over the Internet. So it sounds like what you're saying is that we make 
getting unplugged or compulsive use of technology an individual's responsibility but behind the scenes you know some of the best minds in engineering and design are essentially creating these platforms and devices that keep us uh, hooked on them right and they also want to make sure that we think it's our responsibility and that's a very old trick that corporate industries have used for many years I've studied the tobacco com- uh, industry the food industry the idea is that once the truth comes out that their products are addicting the users, immediately they come out with this defense mechanism. Well, the consumer chose to consume our products, so they're responsible for anything that happens. And that's exactly what the tech industry is doing. Mm -hmm. They're giving us these self-help tools, for example, like on iPhone, you have something that you can see how much time you spent on your phone, or you can limit how much time you spend on apps if you feel like it. And so that idea is that the user is in control. And if we fail, which we all do, it's our fault. Mm-hmm. And then we keep blaming ourselves. But in general, they don't work. And the reason they don't work is they don't get to the heart of the matter. They don't, for example, cancel the infinite scroll. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, they don't make a limited time the default. They make you, the user, have to go and limit yourself. That results in something very, very different. Yeah. I'm Nora Young. Today on Spark, we're talking about tech overuse. Right now, my guest is Gaia Bernstein, a law professor and author of Unwired, Gaining Control Over Addictive Technologies. When it comes to tackling broader technology overuse, Gaia wants to shift the responsibility from users to the technology industry and the companies that are creating platforms and devices that keep us hooked. She argues that collective action is necessary, including legal measures. And she draws parallels between the fight against the tobacco industry with what the tech industry is currently facing. It's interesting to learn not just what didn't work, but what did work. So you can see the vulnerabilities going forward. One place you can see it is when intent to addict is revealed. So another factor that's change things in the litigation against tobacco companies is when finally, after decades, evidence came out that tobacco companies actually knew that nicotine was addictive and they were making sure that their consumers were addicted. We already have this evidence. I mean, Francis Hogan, who worked for Facebook, testified in the U.S. Congress that uh, they knew that Instagram was harming girls the longer they stayed on and they decided to keep going. Mm-hmm. So we have the evidence, and the other place is kids, because we don't think that kids are making choices. We don't think that kids are responsible. We're very fine with making choices for kids. And, you know, kids cannot buy cigarettes under a certain age. Adults can still buy cigarettes. Kids in the U.S., the schools, are required to weigh them and send the BMI to parents in the fight against obesity. This does not happen to us when we go to work. Employees are not going to work. <laughs> so it's important because I think that will be the way out. We're already seeing that most of the activity is to protect children. The thing is, once you start um, basically prohibiting features for kids, it's very likely that they will end up being prohibited for all of us. It gets harder and harder to make the distinction. Right. What about the argument that 
tech companies gathering our data results in harms? Do you think there's any legal heat to that? Well, I think there definitely is. I think it's part of the same business model. I mean, why are they gathering our data and taking our time? Because they need our data in order to target accurate advertising at us. And then they need us to stay for as long as possible so they can gather more data and then for us to see the advertisement. So I think gathering data has lots of, you know, unexpected results. So what makes me optimistic, and my book is intended to be an optimistic book, is privacy is well ahead of the fight against technology addiction because there are many more laws against privacy. I think that's the second way to really change things is to change this business model. And regulating privacy and um, basically making it illegal to collect data about children, for example, makes the whole model less, less lucrative. And if this model finally changes and we go to different models in which we don't get everything for free, which we're used to, like Gmail or Facebook or Instagram, but maybe we pay as we go. Can you imagine if you go on Instagram and you have to pay as you go? You're likely just to think about how much time you're spending and then the companies will not be so focused on putting design features that are just meant to keep you there for longer because this is no longer the business model. So I think we have to sort of expand our imagination beyond this business model that's been part of the internet economy for two decades now. Yeah. Beyond legal action, which can often take years, what are sort of collective efforts that can be taken even at a more local level, like within communities? I think that uh, the most important places is schools because basically the policy for schools has been for over a decade now, the more technology, the better. A laptop for every child. And the idea was this will help bridge gaps between populations and the kids will learn better, will be better prepared for the future. But the mega studies have actually shown that in most cases, a live teacher is much more effective than technology and that even bridging gaps between population has not proven to get better with the use of more technology. But we kept going, and until the pandemic, teachers sort of held back on that because they wanted to keep teaching the way they were used to teach. But with the pandemic, they had no choice, and they got used to using games like Minecraft and Roblox in the classroom or putting their lectures on TikTok. And the thing is, hours in class add up to hours at home. But also, if you're learning on your computer in class, your homework is going to be on your computer. And if Minecraft is legitimized by school, how can a parent tell their kid to get off Minecraft? So I think that we have to assess every technology. Is it better than a teacher or not? Maybe game quizzes are good for math because kids are more motivated, but maybe not because of the dopamine boost that kids get from that. But I think that's something that can be done much quicker yeah. in individual schools. And that's where I think we need to start. What about the role of businesses, for example, in creating these kind of hyper-connected spaces? I'm thinking of how, you know, when we used to travel by plane, that would be at least the one time when you would disconnect. But now more airlines are offering in-flight high-speed Wi-Fi. Is, is there something to be said for encouraging businesses not to do that? Yeah, I think definitely that's another place where people and individuals can make a difference. 
because you can design for overuse or you can design for less use. Many airports now have four laptops sometimes on every table between the diners so they can order and they can so you really there's no way for you to talk to anybody uh, since the pandemic many restaurants still keep qr codes instead of menus so if you have a qr code you have to take out your phone use your phone your phone stays on the table parents bring ipads for the kids restaurants the things as a business owner that you can do you can give crayons to kids when they come in uh, you can think about how you design your business to encourage people not to use their uh, phones by giving them regular menus. I think there are lots of ways that people can make an impact individually, not just by suing tech companies and writing congressmen. Yeah. I mean, I think even if we acknowledge that the responsibility ultimately lies with tech companies, are there ways for individuals to strike a better balance to, to reduce our technology use and, and address that overuse? So I think there's several things that people can do. I think with smaller children, you have much more of an impact because you can decide what technology they use and what they don't use. Of course, sometimes it's hard for parents. You're going on a long plane ride. You want the kid to have an iPad. But you can decide what the norms are for your family and you can decide whether you are allowing them to use uh, devices on the dinner table and you can d decide whether you want them to use devices when they go out. And you can try to, if you can, delay the age in which they start using a smartphone. I think when it gets to kids in middle school or high school, you don't really have that option. And I think that's why I really argue for switching away from fighting at home and fighting in your family to fighting collectively because you can't isolate your child. You can talk to them if they're willing to listen about how they feel, how they felt during the pandemic when they were stuck at home and when they were sitting in front of the computer all day, how it makes them feel. And you can try doing small things for yourself, like some people delete an app they feel that they're addicted to. But I think these are all things we need to do sort of to bridge the gap. I do believe there's a lot of legal action and things are going to change. But in the meantime, we have a generation of kids who sat for more than a decade in front of screens. Yeah. And they're becoming adults. So I think we need to do everything we can to sort of try to change norms in little ways until things change more socially. Yeah. Gaia, thanks so much for your insights on this. Thank you so much for having me. Gaia Bernstein is the author of Unwired, Gaining Control Over Addictive Technologies and a law professor at Seton Hall University in New Jersey. That interview was from 2023. Over the course of this episode, we've heard our guests explore the problem of tech overuse and also what some of the solutions are at a societal and personal level. We haven't totally solved the problem, but hopefully you've been inspired to bring a little more balance to your digital life in 2024. You've been listening to Spark. The show is made by Michelle Parisi, Samra Johannes, and me, Nora Young. And by Michael Harris, Anna Lemke, Tiffany Schlein, and Gaia Bernstein. The role of Henry David Thoreau was played by Sean Foley. Subscribe to Spark on the free CBC Listen app or your favorite podcast app. I'm Nora Young. Talk to you soon.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.